Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 458. I think that this show is going to resonate with everybody. Um, (laughs) It is currently May 25th, and when you listen to this podcast, it will be the unofficial start of summer here in the United States, and we are having steady decline of um, COVID cases and hospitalizations and death, Um, and that's wonderful. Wonderful news. Um, We're also having a lot of changes, you know, throughout the whole country um, as to people's access to things and people are starting to get out there, especially for Memorial Day. You know, a lot of people are looking forward to getting outside and um, making the most of hopefully um, getting back out there. But that comes with this like other side of the coin of so much stress that I don't even mm-hmm. think that people realize how much um, it's going to hit them until they're in those situations. And then you kind of reflect on the losses that you had over the last year or the anxiety of the things in front of you that you haven't had to deal with for the past year and all of these kinds of things. And it's kind of, you know, resonated with me, especially because I've realized how much the last year is trauma. And I know most people will hear that and be like, that's an exaggeration, but we're going to get into it. <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to talk about, you know, what trauma is. And it's very individual. But for a lot of people, we've just experienced a collective trauma. And so now we are recovering from that trauma. And it, the reason it's specifically resonating with me and I'm, I'm feeling it that way is because I went through so much training through um, pre- preparation for being a foster parent on trauma, on the brain, and how um, our brain fires when we go through those changes. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to help understand, I want to help people understand that like all mental health issues, this is not a dig on them. This is either a physical reaction, a chemical reaction, things that are happening into your brain, like a medical condition. And there are things that we can do to support that. But we also have to be willing to acknowledge that this is what we're going through. And that it doesn't reflect on us as people, or maybe it's something that someone that you know is really struggling with and to have patience with them. Um, And so As we wrap up Mental Health Awareness Month, which is what the month of May is, um, I thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of like talk about these challenges, but also how we can support one another through this transition, we'll call it. Does that make sense? It does. I, I personally have been experiencing quite a lot of what is sort of being termed reentry anxiety. And it's hard to pinpoint... Uh, and I know we're going to get into this, right? The the collective trauma that we've all experienced over the last year, it's not 
it's not that it was one thing, right? It's not pointing to one experience that has then led me to, to feel this anxiety now. It was more the, you know, the slow drip, drip, drip of, um, what I've uh, one friend who refers to it as sort of like the existential stress of living through a global pandemic. And I think we've got to the point where, you know, all of us had to make adjustments to our lives. All of a sudden things that used to be perfectly normal everyday activities were no longer safe and having to, um, reassess the risk of what sort of seemed like really benign activities before all of a sudden are high risk, high risk activities that we're trying to avoid. Um, we've had the, the stress of, um, the economic challenges we've had, you know, I, I know so many people who have been really sick. It's, um, you know, and of course over 600,000 Americans have died of, of COVID-19, and I think that it's hard to recognize the, the way that that stress adds up until we're having experiences like I'm having now where I'm fully vaccinated, um, but my whole family isn't. So I'm being very cautious as I really sort of, you know, I have my own risk analysis because I consider it my job as a parent not to be a breakthrough infection and bring COVID home to my unvaccinated 11-year-old. Um, and so I'm I'm going, I'm navigating life trying to, you know, I'm still choosing to wear a mask in the grocery store, even if the grocery store that I'm shopping in doesn't have a mask mandate. I've already been mask shamed um, in a very similar way to um, being mass shamed pre like early on in the pandemic when I was a early adopter of the face mask. Um, and I'm also faced with the other sort of discordance of what used to be really normal activities for me feeling really abnormal. And what I've had to do for myself just to, to give myself the grace to, you know, understand that this is a lot of change, you know, going back to normal after so long of isolation and virtual school and virtual work and all of these things, um, it's not, it's not like I took a weekend off, right? It was 15, 16 months of a very different lifestyle. And so going back to my old routines, it's more like establishing them from the, from the start. Um, it is a very different uh, set of experiences compared to what I have been living. And so I'm really giving myself the grace of adding one thing at a time. And really like, if it takes me the next six months to get back into that full groove of what my life was like before there was a global pandemic, that's, that's okay. That's how long it takes me. But I'm realizing as I share my own experiences of rancher anxiety, how common those feelings are through a spectrum and it's different types of activities are sort of triggering for different people. And I, I'm really, I, I think it's going to be really helpful to put those emotions into the context of a collective trauma that we've all sort of gone through over the last almost year and a half and, and kind of talk about the, neurobiology, the physiology, um, and also the behavioral biology, which I, I'm excited, Stacey, that you've kind of, you've, you've got, uh, 
we've, we're like two sides of a coin in terms of our, our understanding of, of what's um, behind uh, the manifestations of this particular mental health challenge. So I think this is going to be a really fun, really fun episode to kind of combine both of our different like areas of expertise into one cool topic. I totally had a snarky comment, not towards you, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep it to myself and be very grateful and thankful that you think that I have knowledge in some sort of area. (laughs) Of course you do. I know. I I know I do. I, I hear your, your self-deprecating snark. Yes. And I, I challenge you. I raise you to not. That was really not good. I'm saying don't be silly. Of course no, uh, you have no, so many areas of expertise. I wouldn't. So, I no wouldn't self-deprecation joke. here. I wouldn't joke about it if I thought it was true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, like, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a very smart lady. Um, okay. So before we jump in, I do just want to be very clear. One of the things that we're going to get to as we move on in the show is um, more kind of definitions, and all that kind of stuff. But if you're sitting there and you're like, why do you keep using the word trauma? Like we've all just, you know, experienced this. We can't all have trauma. Yes, we can. Um, so if you think about something like a natural disaster, wouldn't it be a traumatic experience to have gone through a hurricane, right? And then all of the people who would have experienced that would have their own perceptions of what happened. They would have their own lived experiences. They would have um, all of their own reactions to that experience, but it would have been a trauma and some people react differently. And so that's kind of what we're going to get into. But when we say a trauma, a global pandemic, think of it like, if you had been through a hurricane from the same perspective of the classification of a natural disaster. And I just, I want to put that out there because I I think that sometimes we don't give ourselves the grace that we need to accept, which means that we can't heal. Right. And so I want to lay the groundwork for making sure that we're, we're all giving ourselves and other people the grace to accept that we don't know what lived experience someone else has. We've all, as you stated, Sarah, had a variety of experiences through this pandemic based on, you know, if you have kids, if you were alone, if you worked, if you were at home, if your kids went to school and you, you know, worried about that, if you virtual schooled and you dealt with, you know, being stuck with all these kids for so long. (laughs) We all have our own lived experiences from this but when we say trauma that's what we mean well in the the studies that have been done to try to measure the the mental health impact of the the pandemic um they actually take this really sort of big umbrella approach to measuring it so they look at things like you know symptoms of anxiety or depression they look at uh, symptoms of PTSD, right? Trauma and or stressor related disorders. They look at things like um, having started uh, substance use to cope with stress or emotions or increased substance use um, or stress to cope with emotions. They kind of look at, they look at the whole spectrum. So they look at everything from, you know, you have one sort of symptom of anxiety all the way to, um, you know, suicidal ideation and every 
you know, the full spectrum in between. And what's actually that the numbers are really, um, they really help put this into perspective for me because I think it's easy after a year of physical isolation to feel um, socially isolated in the emotions that we're experiencing right now. But um, there was a study done last summer that actually showed that the biggest increase in sort of um, trauma-related symptoms um, was in the first sort of few months of, of the pandemic when things were changing so rapidly, so quickly. Um, and they actually showed that at that time, about 41% of Americans were having at least one mental health or behavioral health uh, condition, right, or symptom, um, at least one thing that was uh, not normal mental and emotional health. And um, there was obviously there was some racial disparity in and also some demographic disparity, right? Essential workers were more likely, um, caregivers were more likely, right? Uh, there was definitely, it was higher among young people, um, but this was a huge increase. So to put it into perspective, this was about a threefold increase in anxiety compared to the same time frame in 2019 and about four times higher in depression compared to the same time frame in 2019. Suicidal ideation was about twice as high compared to the, the same time period that they compared that to a time period in 2018 because um, they looked at a 12-month time period for that, that measurement as opposed to a three-month time period. So those are huge, huge, huge increases, right? Three to four times more people um, having mental health challenges as a direct result of the pandemic. And there've been a few follow-up studies that have shown that even though we had this, the biggest increase in mental health challenges related to the pandemic, sort of in that, that first, you know, it was like quarter two of 2020 was sort of the, the biggest increase when most people's lives were, were facing the, the biggest disruptions. Um, the, the studies that have been ongoing have basically shown that, um, it's, it's basically still continued to rise just a much slower increase. Um, so we're showing again, right. So a, um, you know, five, 6% continued increase in anxiety disorder, uh, six ish percent in continued increase in depressive disorder. Um, we're now talking about, you know, closing in on, um, you know, almost half, right? It's like 43 to 45% of, of people, depending on um, which study you look at, there've been a few different ones and they've measured things a little bit differently um, that are ongoing, you know, results published in April, 2021 are ongoing, having some kind of mental health challenge as a result of what we've lived through this last almost year and a half now. Um, and so I think it's really important to recognize, um, you know, we might have some listeners who, who very genuinely, you know, aren't feeling these emotions, but there's a pretty much a hundred percent chance that, you know, somebody who is. So this show is about sort of talking through that experience and, um, and 
you know, hopefully some, some paths forward, um, as well as recognizing that um, this is so common that we're all affected, even if we aren't personally experiencing it. And I, I think that um, I would challenge that we're not personally experiencing it. I think that it's just a matter of like how, how we manage that stress. And a lot of people that I talk to, so I'm going to raise my hand and say, I'm someone with high functioning anxiety, right? And if you asked me before I took deep training on this and before I, um, really understood how these things work, I would have been like, yes, I'm here for you because I am doing great. Um, but mm. turns out that's my perfectionism. That's my um, denial of what is happening because I'm kind of pushing that away and I'm I'm not um, dealing with the real problems that truly are affecting me, but that I feel like I don't have time to deal with that or, you know, I'm better than that or whatever the case may be, right? Like, and so the more learning that I did about the different kinds of ways that these traumas affect our brains, the more I I think that some of these numbers, um, it was interesting to me, you were so surprised. I looked at them and I was like, I'm surprised they're not higher. And I think that that might be because if you would have asked me three years ago from this situation, I would have said, no, I'm not having an adverse mental or behavioral health condition. I did great. I'm still standing. I kept my kids. We're, we're <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? And right. now I'm able to look at what was the cost of that for me? And how do I, how do I help myself acknowledge what happened and heal what happened so that in the future, I don't carry this with me. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I learned from, from trauma training is that if we don't work through these things, we continue to carry them and like, imagine yourself with a suitcase and you just like keep putting bricks in it throughout your life. And mm -hmm. the bag gets to be too much that you can't handle. And that's when you feel like, oh, now I have an issue when your bag is like, too heavy, you can't carry it. But all along, it was weighing you down and slowing you down. And you know, you were less mobile and agile from having this, this bag. So that's kind of how I think of what happened. And I, I just cannot imagine that anyone has gone through this and not felt something. And I think that's, that's mm -hmm. the biggest yeah. thing is we've it's just, it's all hit us differently based on those circumstances, which you mentioned, right? So, um, I yeah, go ahead. I think that's really interesting to, to sort of have your perspective in terms of recognizing um, how, say, let's, let's sort of generalize it as, as stress, how stress sort of impacts you. Um, because for me, I have a 20 some odd year history of um, anxiety attacks, like where there's physical symptoms of anxiety, where my ears start ringing and I, my eyes start to black out and, um, I feel like my heart is racing. And, um, and even though, you know, doing all of the diet and lifestyle changes that I did, uh, just about 10 years ago now really reduced that to like, there was years that went by without having an anxiety attack when they kicked up again in sort of April, 2020, I knew exactly what it was. 
and was able to go like, wow, that's, that's intense. I haven't had, you know, an anxiety attack like this in a long time. And then when they started, it wasn't just one or two here or there. It was several a week for me. That was, for me, it's, it's having those physical manifestations of stress and anxiety. Um, you know, it would be the same for depression, PTSD, for example. Um, it makes it harder to, um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, put that sort of rosy spin on, you know, but I'm such a strong person. I know I'm a strong person, but I know that I still have to be really conscientious of how I navigate the world because of having probably what is some mild generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. And I think what's unfortunate in our country is there's such a stigma on mental health that most people don't want to classify themselves as having an anxiety disorder or having depression or having anything like that because there's a stigma with it. And the mental health services that are available to people there is um, repercussion, for example, if you have a security clearance or if you have, you know, a job that looks at something like that, a lot of people are going to be avoiding it for those reasons, right? So it's, um, there's just, there's a, a lot that goes into it. But I think what we want to talk about is collectively, we can all say that we've had a str- like an ex- significant stressor um, that has affected us from this last year. And We need to understand that there is a significant portion of the population, our friends, our family members, our children, our parents, um, who are going to re-enter in a different mental state than um, you might have experienced with them over a year ago. And um, whether that's someone else or whether that's you or, you know, I find myself needing to ask my, like, say to myself, um, why am I, why am I feeling this way? Like, why am I feeling defensive? Or why, why is it awkward for me to have conversation? Or, you know, like, why, why am I feeling all these kinds of things so that then I can kind of work through it in my brain and there's no stigma or judgment on me. It's just like, okay, clearly I'm feeling triggered right now. Like what, what just happened Mm -hmm. and how can I work through it? Um, Because that's one of the things about a trauma is there's going to be triggers that bring it back up for you. Um, You know, when you look at someone like with PTSD, they're going to have nightmares and all these kinds of things that um, happen unconsciously. But there's also going to be things like, for example, when your dog hears a firework and, you know, freaks out, that is a, that's a triggering event for, um, you know, a fear that they have. So we're going to experience that when we go out into the world, Sarah, like you said, you know, going into a grocery store, you might have a moment where you have a panic attack, not you, Sarah, I mean, you might have one, but just in general, it might be the first time someone experiences that and you might not know what that is or why that is. And I just think it's really important. Well, and and panic attacks are very individualized. So how that experience, you know, I, so anxiety and depression runs in my family. And we've had this conversation between different family members who've had anxiety attacks and all of us describe an anxiety attack the physical symptoms of an anxiety attack completely differently. Um, So also recognize that my sensations of ears ringing and my, my vision kind of blacking out, that's for me how I experience an anxiety attack. My brother um, has GI symptoms and that's it, right? Like it's, you know, and 
there's all kinds of other examples of, um, you know, for some people it feels like having a waking nightmare or it feels like, um, not being able to breathe. Um, someone, some people will, will feel that, you know, it almost feels like a heart attack. Um, and it can be kind of everything in in between. It can be just feeling like you're shutting down there. It's a, it's not, there's not one way to experience anxiety. Okay. So we have talked about this before, before we jump into all of that, um, we are going to address different aspects of it, but we want to remind you that we are not medical professionals. And I would highly, highly encourage you to talk to a medical professional. If any of what Mm -hmm. we're talking about today resonates, or if you're talking to a friend or family member who's describing some of these things, please encourage them that medication and therapy or asking for help. None of that is a failure. In fact, it makes them a stronger, better person on the other side, right? And so I think when we have- when we have a support system that's encouraging us to do something like that, it feels very vulnerable to reach out and um, ask for help in those kinds of ways. And when we feel like we have the support to do that or the encouragement of others or even just the validation of like what you're feeling is totally valid and it sounds like you could benefit from talking to someone professional who could help you process those feelings, right? Like it's, that is such a supportive statement to help someone realize like, yeah, I, I could benefit from talking to someone. So please, please do not think of us as your, you listen to the show and you're one and done. I think, you know, my biggest message and takeaway is if, if some of this resonates in any sort of way with anyone, you know, the best thing that you could do is just really validate and encourage them to seek support via medicine and or therapy for that. And there is no shame or judgment in any sort of capacity on anything that we're going to jump into on the show. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For sure. Um, I also want to sort of, you know, remind our listeners that this is hardly our first show on mental health. And we've actually laid a lot of scientific groundwork for what we're going to talk about today in a, in a variety of shows. So I'm going to kind of just run through episode numbers and roughly what we talked about on those shows so that if you... Um, haven't listened to them in a while, you missed that episode, or you're a new listener, you know where to go to kind of expand uh, the conversation on whatever area feels most relevant to you. So in episode 319, we talked about abundance mindset and optimism, but we also specifically talked about PTSD, emotional freedom technique, EMDR, and mindfulness. So that's a really important show um, that kind of feeds into everything we're going to talk about today. In episode 383, we talked about 
generalized anxiety disorder. We talked about the amygdala versus the cortex. And again, sort of talked about diet and lifestyle and mindfulness for mental health in that episode, another super foundational episode for what we're going to talk about today. In episode 303, we talked about the links between foods and anxiety. Um, in episode 446, we actually talked about nutritional deficiencies that can be caused by chronic stress. And in 409, we talked about magnesium specifically, which is one of the more important ones. Um, 446 focused more on vitamin C. In episode 397, we talked about the sleep stress cycle and sort of practical ways to support and work on both simultaneously because they're so interlinked. In 351, we just talked about the physiological impact of chronic stress. In episode 408, we talked about insomnia and how insomnia is linked with mental health. In episode 382, we talked about social media use and the impact of social media on mental health and ways to use social media in a very positive way and set boundaries. Um, and then, of course, we talked about Stacy's um, experiences with depression after her back injury in episodes 204 and 251. That was a doozy. <laughs> it was a lot. I mean, that was a that was a big that was that was a life event. Um, clearly, we do not shy away from this topic, um, but I do think that it's kind of never ending for our people, and I think that's one of the things mm -hmm. to kind of highlight is this is not something that you know you address at one point in time and then it never comes back up. And for me, certainly, this past year has um, caused a lot of. Uh, evaluation. And I will be the first one to say multiple people in my house are in therapeutic services and um, it is incredibly helpful and I recommend it for everybody. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's just my personal experience. Um, having said that, um, one of the things that really kind of resonated with me is this idea of um, the training that I received uh, years ago on PTSD. And so a post-traumatic stress disorder would be something where after you experience a trauma, you then kind of continuously feel the stress of that trauma in different sort of ways, whether they're fragments that come back up, whether it's a trigger that ignites it, whether it's um, flashbacks or panic attacks, or, you know, you feel startled by something, um, you know, I, I think I see it in my dog, for example, who hasn't had people knock on the door and come very often, my, Penny has forgotten how to socialize, right? And so yeah. she she has great fear um, <laughs> oftentimes, whether she has PTSD from um, the experience, I don't think so. I think, in fact, it was quite lovely to have everybody here and nobody visiting. And um, so now we need to kind of reintegrate her back into the normal world and, and get her warmed up to, you know, people are going to start knocking on the door again. We haven't had someone tell us that they can replace our roof in over a year. And now everybody's out telling us, you know, we need a new roof. Um, we don't actually need a new roof. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like the door-to-door <laughs> no, -door guys. Yeah. yeah. I totally know what you're talking about. Every storm. <laughs> yes, Every exactly. storm. We'll help you file an insurance claim. No. I'm, no. Nope. My new, I'm, no. I'm good. Um, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super, super. I'm not going to go down that tangent because I will rant for another 20 minutes. About... I'm sure all of us, we know we're, we're the door-to-door -door guys are back. It was so nice. Yeah. They were, they were not here for a while and they're, they're back. Um, and so while, 
you know, I explained that the American Psychiatric Association does include something like a natural disaster as a potential traumatic event, how that affects us individually is all very different. But we all have a brain and we all have Mm -hmm. specifically an amygdala, um, which kind of is in charge of our um, fear and associated learning. And so in PTSD in particular, you're going to have an increased responsiveness to traumatic and emotional feelings or events. And um, I remember in training, my trainer used their fist and they kind of like curled up their fingers, but they had their thumb out and they were like, your thumb is your amygdala. And what happens is when you're feeling um, you've got these feelings like your your amygdala kind of like curls into her fist and she's like it you become fearful like a like a turtle going back into the its shell and um, you can't process kind of all the other things that are in life if you are operating from a place of fear and we talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs last week it was the week before week before last um and I think you know that's relative because if you consider where if you're operating from a place of you're concerned about your safety that's something we can all relate to over the past year Mm -hmm. right you're concerned about um different kinds of hierarchy of needs then you combine that with the trauma of your brain trying to protect you and the higher functioning aspects and the other um more nuanced elements of being a higher functioning person become difficult. And then what happens is we we might not even realize that fragmentation is, is happening, or we might not realize that we're responding to something out of anger or assuming the worst, right? And I think those are the places where I see it the most in my home is, you know, we're very quick to like assume the worst of somebody else or we're very quick to like, what, why are you looking at me that way? Right? Like the, the judgment mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff, because we're, we're operating from a place of fear um, versus kind of being in a place where things are just calm and our amygdala is fully functioning. So um, I think what would be interesting, Sarah, I know we talked about, um, like general anxiety disorder, but I think um, the mechanism of how the different aspects of the brain work together um, from a scientific perspective might be helpful for people to understand because I think it's so essential to understanding how you feel. Do you know what I mean? For sure. (laughs) Like, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess um, the, the, the easy way to kind of understand it is that the brain can be sort of broadly broken down into functional regions. So we have these, these different areas of the brain that kind of specialize in either processing a certain kind of information or controlling a certain kind of function. And then there's crosstalk, right? So you can't, we're very complex beings, right? We, we don't, um, we don't do anything sort of in isolation. Everything we do requires uh, this coordinated effort of every system in the, in the body. And so not only does each region of the brain sort of specialize in its different activity, it's, it's, it's different sort of role, but then they also all coordinate. So the hippocampus, for example, is um, really this area of the brain that is assembling information so um, it is really important for, right, things like learning, um, but it's, it's really this part of the brain that goes like, 
here's all of the different senses that I'm experiencing. I'll go tell other areas of the brain what what's what am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? Then the prefrontal cortex is the area of the brain where we basically think of as like the thinking part of the brain. Um, it's the part where we make decisions. So we assemble all of this information and then uh, we decide what to do. So like this is where things like planning happen, um, problem solving, um, um, memory come, comes from this area. And then the amygdala is... Uh, sort of central to emotional processing, but also um, the part of what the amygdala does is it, it monitors the body's reactions to environment. Um, so the amygdala is involved in a lot of like habitual learning, for example. And in a normal situation, uh, and then there's other, right? Hypothalamus is uh, like the the major um, endocrine manager, so it manages, it tells all of the hormone producing organs in the body what to do, right? So we've got these other other areas as well. But if we just think about the integration between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, um, and how those areas help us process information and then respond to information and respond both in a planned fashion as well as emotionally. And what happens in all the entire spectrum of um, mental health disorders related to stress and trauma is the crosstalk between these areas of the brain starts to break down. So the amygdala, which is um, where we have, um, for example, this, um, reactive, sort of emotionally reactive part of the brain stops really listening to the reasoning, thinking part of our brain, which stops really thinking about the sensory input, right? So all of a sudden, these different functions become dissociated, which is why we can have a, um, for example, a fear trigger or a startle reflex from, it, it starts to become something that, um, will be triggering without even ever processing what what the trigger is. So it could be as simple as um, a, a breeze in the air and you don't even notice the breeze before you're reacting emotionally to it as a, you know, it's become associative with some particular traumatic experience, something horrible happened on a day there was wind. Um, you wouldn't have thought that the environment would be that important, but it does become a triggering event because of the sort of conditioned fear response that is happening in the amygdala and the lack of crosstalk with other areas of the brain that would normally um, plan a response and the response would be measured. But in, you know, after stress and trauma, n no longer do these areas of the brain coordinate effectively. Yeah. And I was thinking when you said, um, the breeze outside, how much being outside, like when we went to the farmer's market and there were, you know, people around, like more people around, how that was a triggering thing f for me as well, right? Like just kind mm -hmm. of like taking the moment of like, wow, there's a crowd. And I'm sure we can all relate to when you've watched a television show or a movie that's included crowded spaces or sporting events, like how you've kind of like taken aback, like, whoa, you know, that is hitting you. From or, a or, or an ad 
and people are in an office building interacting without masks and you're like <laughs> just what all where's your masks right? yes what yes. are you doing yeah uh yeah yeah it's weird it's weird to see n- normal yeah so what i kind of want to highlight is all of these emotions that we're talking about whether it's coming from you know, just these kind of casual observations, or if it's coming from a real traumatic trigger, um, because of your brain function being affected, all of these emotions are going to cause a change of behavior. And I learned this relative to foster care. And so I want to highlight it as a parent. One of the things that I am often asked about is, for example, how do I handle um, ADHD outbursts with my son who really struggled this year. And one of the responses that I kept giving to people over and over that really resonated was this idea that like his behavior is a display of his emotion. So if Mm -hmm. as a parent, I am only addressing the behavior and I'm you know, either rewarding good behavior or, you know, creating consequences for bad behavior. It doesn't matter. If I'm only addressing the behavior, I'm not actually going to solve the problem because I'm never getting to the root of the problem. And that's where something like therapy comes into play for much, um, many more behaviors that are a problem if you consider something like an eating disorder or an addiction, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's not just about okay, you need to stop doing that behavior. No, the behavior is an um, display of an emotion that someone is feeling inside. And so we, we will never really get to the root of the problem if we don't address the emotion. And so when we talk about the behaviors that you might see as people re-enter, I will tell you, I, I went to a funeral last week and there was someone oh, at the- I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, it was a, it's okay. Um, it was uh, my, a family member who had lived a very full life. Um, and when I was interacting with someone who had not left their house in over a year, um, there, there were um, some health factors at play. And this person was a person who had people bring them things or, you know, whatever, but like they themselves had not interacted or um, gone anywhere for over a year. Their social interactions were very difficult. The behaviors that they were displaying had me feeling like, oh, what have I done wrong? This person did mm. this thing. And the, the social cue and the like the cultural normality, so to speak, of how someone looks at you or how they, you know, speak to you or how they don't speak to you or how they don't make eye contact with you. All of these things play into like these subtle behavioral, um, right? They say communication is mostly nonverbal, Right. And so all of these cues were like, oh, what did I do wrong? Did they not like me? Like, what, you know, like all these things. Yeah. And then I realized, no, this person is just reacclimating to um, reentering the normal cultural space. And really, normal is not the appropriate word here because none of anything that we've gone through and will continue to transition to is, is normal, so to speak. But I say that because the behavior that this person was exhibiting was something that made me think that there was something else wrong until I realized, no, that that person is working through their own emotions of like, 
being able to leave the house for the first time after, you know, they, they and their loved ones were vaccinated. Right. So, um, that's just a, a very light example, but there's going to be a lot of things. I mean, we're seeing it play out this year in terms of, um, public shootings, for example, in the United States are at an all-time high, right? There's there's countless things that I can point to that are going to be behaviors that are escalated and elevated because you're emotions are driving your behavior. And since our brains are all emotionally affected by the trauma of the last year, behavior will display accordingly. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. So... I think that it's going to be really helpful for our listeners, for us to, to really talk about, you know, after acknowledging um, trauma and stress and the various ways that that can manifest in our emotional and mental health, but also our physical health. Let's talk about um, action items. Let's, let's talk about what we can do, what we can do to rather than, necessarily purely addressing the behavior, take that root cause approach and address the emotions. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that there are um, certainly things that we can do for ourselves and also help others. So that's, that's all we can offer here as non-medical <laughs> experts in the field. And as a good, a good place to once again, plug experts, I think, uh, taking advantage of expert help, whether that expert help comes in the form of a counselor or uh, in, right, whether it's a psychiatrist or a psychologist or both, right? So um, this is, again, another, I think, point to remind our listeners that um, seeking expert uh, help and advice um, and guidance to navigate these situations is very helpful because especially as we've already, I think, covered excessively, the experience can be very individualized and often the path through can be very individualized. And that is not something that, you know, our upcoming sort of roundup of uh, therapies and and diet and lifestyle um, strategies is going to be able to necessarily accomplish. Absolutely. There are, I can tell you from training and working with a lot of different um, therapists across the last couple of years for different reasons, um, there are certain techniques that um, we know can bring um, oxygen and blood flow back to the brain. So when it gets 
into that place of trauma, we can actively support calming the body and um, allowing access to those higher functions within the brain. So for Mm -hmm. example, we've talked before about breathing in the show. And if you've been here a minute, you know that I refuse to call it meditation. Um, Even though it's meditation. (laughs) I'm a big fan of breathing. (laughs) And it's something that I myself do. And I do with the kids, right? When we, Mm -hmm. when I describe it to the kids as like, do we feel our bodies are in control right now? No. Okay. Let's help our bodies get in control. Let's take some deep breaths and slow exhales. And then we talk about what the problem is. And it is incredible. Matt said to me, I taught him how to do this with one of our kids. Like, listen, when, when it gets to that chaotic point, there's nothing that you're going to be able to do. No logic or reason can be heard when you're in that escalated state. We need to calm it down. And this technique really works with this individual. Um, And he practiced that when I wasn't around once. And he said to me later, he's like, wow, that breathing thing really works. (laughs) I was like, yes, it really does. Um, And that's, that is both a, um, you know, physical and an emotional response, right? Being able to, Mm -hmm. to calm yourself like that. So there, there are other things as well. I know, um, there's something um, that we do that I would recommend everybody do where um, whether you call it a safety plan or you just call it a plan or you call it, um, you know, a, a list of things that bring you joy, helping yourself have a list of things that you know will help either you or a loved one when they're in that escalated state. So things like drawing things like actually skincare and makeup or taking a bath, taking a walk, um, exercising, doing a breathing technique, doing yoga, you know, things that really kind of like center and calm. And it's going to be, as you said, Sarah, very individualized. But if you know those things that really help you center, if you have a list already written down, then when you're feeling that escalated, sometimes it's really difficult to think about how to help yourself. But if the list is already created and you're like, you know what, I'm going to go sit outside and do my breathing techniques while I watch the birds. That's something I've been doing lately. (laughs) I go really into birds because I'm a 72 year old woman who likes water aerobics and birds. Um, I already know that that's something too. I think it's okay. It's It's okay. okay. I don't think liking birds when granted, I learned about birds and gardening from my grandparents. Exactly. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's, no, it's, we can, we can claim it. It It's fine. It's fine for us super young people to do. <laughs> My 13 year old told me it's fine. Um, so I'm going to cling to that. Anyway, yeah. if you, if you know that you have something that you can go to that will help you in that moment, um, it's a lot easier than if you're trying to wade through your heightened emotions to find that in the time. Um, there are also a lot of sensory therapies, but also things that you can do yourself. Um, Like tapping is something that Mm -hmm. um, Matt's therapist actually taught him years ago. Um, But there's also, you know, more complex things that you would work through with a therapist, like something DBT, um, which is uh, dialectical behavior therapy, where you could work with a medical professional for um, a period of time to kind of re- wire um 
responses um, in, Mm -hmm. you know, physical and and other ways. And so whether you're doing it at home or or you're seeking kind of a more um, therapeutic services to support, depending on where your needs are, um, it could be very helpful and beneficial. And we also, just as another reminder, we kind of dove deep into uh, a number of these types of techniques and how they work and the science behind them in episode 319. So if that's something where you're like, ah, I need to know more, 319 is your episode to go back and listen to. Um, I think it's also helpful. I mean, I know that we've we've talked about the nutrition and lifestyle um, aspect of supporting mental health in detail in a number of shows. Um, I think especially in episode 383 where we talked about anxiety. Um, But I think it's also helpful to kind of look at um, some of the research that shows that we increase our susceptibility to something like PTSD when our diet and lifestyle are not healthy. And I'm summarizing this research not to cause feelings of guilt or blame. This is not about, um, you know, I'm having these mental health issues because I, you know, did, you know, made a, a choice in my past. Um, it's rather, I think it's important to look at because it helps to identify action steps to move forward. Because one of the things that becomes really important for, uh, supporting mental health is identifying, I think, really specific, tasks that we can do that are going to be high value in terms of um, addressing the crosstalk between things like our lifestyle choices, nutrition, and how that impacts our, our brain, right? Because they do. It, it, there's uh, Our brain tells our bodies what to do and our bodies say uh, they talk back. They basically are like snarky teenagers back to the brain at all times. Um, so there's, we'll put links, of course, to the studies in, in our show notes, like we always do, but there've been a couple of, um, actually big studies. I mean, enough to have systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Our listeners know I'm a meta-analyses girl. It's my favorite kind of study. Um, but there, there certainly is a link between, um, what they call them like behavioral risk factors, and um, they're actually the same sort of behavioral risk factors that would increase the likelihood of cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes are actually linked to increased risk of PTSD. They're not huge effects. Um, so uh, these studies basically show that people with a PTSD are basically uh, 5% less likely to have a healthy diet than uh, the sort of age-matched controls they're 9% less likely to engage in physical activity. Um, they're 22% more likely to be current smokers. And they're 31% more likely to be obese, keeping in mind, as we've talked about on the show before, that overweight and obesity um, is a symptom. So it is uh, a symptom of something else happening nutritionally, metabolically. Um, and it's it's not, right, as we've talked about on the show, it is not itself a condition. We can be healthy at any size. Um, but when you, when they're, it's, uh, used in these types of studies, it's used as a general indicator of, um, other things that may be going on. Right. So they were basically able to say, 
there's a link between PTSD, um, at least a partial link with poor diet, sedentary lifestyle, um, as well as other not very healthy behaviors like smoking. Um, this is also, there's a, um, a really interesting study that was actually done in Canada where they got even more granular um, and they were able to show, you know, some things that won't surprise anybody, right? That there was, um, you know, ethnicity and immigrant status, for example, were risk factors, um, you know, low uh, socioeconomic status was a risk factor, right? But after they were controlled for those variables, um, one of the things that they were able to show was that there was a high um, correlation between PTSD and uh, basically like sugar intake, um, but sort of the carb intake. So what they showed was um, daily consumption of pastries, pulses, which is legumes, nuts and chocolate. Um, and of course, this isn't, you know, we, we've talked about dark chocolate and, and why we crave that during stress. Um, this is generally capturing, right? This is all chocolate. So we're capturing a lot of just sort of like chocolate bars, candy bars, those types of things. Um, and what was really interesting about this study and the why, the reason why I, I pulled the information from it was actually the reverse. So I think um, it's interesting to be able to say, you know, not, you know, not exercising might be increasing my risk. Eating a lot of sugar might be increasing my risk. Smoking might be increasing my risk. And these are things that I can look at addressing. But also what they found is just two to three whole food sources of fiber a day significantly reduced odds of PTSD. And that really highlights the gut brain axis and where the gut microbiome is coming into play. And it also shows how powerfully, um, not a perfect diet, but making steps to improve diet quality can be as part of a holistic approach to, to navigating mental health challenges. I love the idea of, you know, when I'm in a state where I am wanting, I, I don't want pulses, but <laughs> pastries or <laughs> chocolate, I do find myself focusing on adding in more what I call fiber, right? Um, like instead of protein, fat, and carbs, I'm like protein, fat, and fiber. Um, yeah. So if I if I find fiber sources, um, my desire for those other things naturally goes down. So I, it is fascinating to me that that's kind of captured in that study. I think one of the other things that's really um, been helpful for me, and we talked about this with um, the pediatrician of my son with ADHD is how important healthy fats are for the brain. Um, mm -hmm. And in particular, you know, one of the first things he asked me was, um, what kind of, or is he taking, and his words were fish oil, but we've talked extensively about that um, also yep. on the show. But, um, you know, I think looking at not just healthy fats, but nutrient density in particular, kind of what are some of those nutrients that are important as brain food so that when we are supporting our brains emotionally, right? Like we, we're not here to tell you that if you just eat enough salmon, you know, your PTSD goes away. That is not what we're saying here, <laughs> but, no. um, 
but we can support the healing process to both the physical and emotional aspects of the brain by focusing on that nutrient density. Like what are some of the other elements um, that you find are, are good brain foods? For sure. So, I mean, this has been well studied. Again, there's review articles and we can link to, to that in the, in the show notes as well. Um, so fiber we've mentioned and you mentioned long chain omega-3 fats that we would get from fish and shellfish. Um, vitamin D is super important. And I think it's important to highlight because if you are vitamin D a deficient or insufficient, it is incredibly challenging to bring levels up to normal with vitamin D rich foods like seafood and mushrooms and uh, more sun exposure, um, especially depending on where you live, where you work, right? How much time you're spending indoors. And so it's, um, it's just one of those nutrients that um, with the way our lives are currently structured, um, it's really important to test and then supplement accordingly and then retest. So you want to make sure because the, the supplementation dose to bring your levels up into the functional range of like 50 to 70 nanograms per milliliter, um, the amount of supplementation that you might need, is very individual because it also is determined in part by your genetics and how inflamed you are, which would you know, reduce um, how much vitamin D you're making yourself. Um, but then it'd be also related to sun exposure, which then is seasonally dependent um, what vitamin D you're getting from food sources, right? So it's it's highly individualized. It might be, you know, 500 IU a day. It might be 10,000 IU a day. So um, it's really important that whatever your doctor recommends you start with in terms of vitamin D supplementation, that you retest every three to four months, make sure that you're taking enough vitamin D and make sure that you're not overshooting the mark because high vitamin D also causes health problems. So that's uh, always, I think, very important to highlight. Um, and then the other nutrients that are really important for, for supporting um, the, the brain and mental health in general um, basically all of the B vitamins, but especially folate and B12, uh, calcium, chromium, iodine, iron, selenium, zinc, and lithium actually is really interesting. Um, and these, you know, these are basically minerals that are abundantly found in seafood. Um, but we're also getting a good amount of these from nuts and seeds. Um, Calcium, we're getting a really high bioavailability calcium from dark leafy greens, for example, cruciferous vegetables. And uh, this is where sea vegetables really shines because one of the few natural sources of lithium would be like an unrefined sea salt, um, like you might get from um, a sort of unrefined uh, sea salt based mineral drops for water or something like. Um, Himalayan pink salt, for example, will have a little bit, um, but also sea vegetables are, are where you would get it. And you need a very, very small amount. Um, but um, those, right, Himalayan pink salt or sea vegetables will have something like 80 different trace minerals in them. Um, and they're things that we used to get exposed to more with soil, but now that our uh, soil quality is being depleted in general and uh, our food is washed typically a lot more than it used to be before we eat it. Um, we need to go out and seek these food sources of, of trace minerals, sort of sea vegetables and unrefined sea salt is where it's at. 
So those are nutrients. Um, I think it's also helpful to, to focus on activity a little bit more, not just in the sense that a sedentary lifestyle is a risk factor, but there are a variety of studies where they do, I mean, all different kinds of a 20 minute walk every day, all the way up to weightlifting, cardio. Um, there's no prescription in terms of what type of exercise or what frequency of exercise is best, but generally an active lifestyle is one of the best things that we can do for mental health. And there's really strong studies showing that people who find ways to be active, and that's potentially one of the reasons why uh, mental health challenges have increased so dramatically during the pandemic is that a lot of us found that our normal outlets for activity were no longer options. Um, and you just can't get the same amount of activity um, walking walking around the house as even, you know, walking around an office or a grocery store. So that's, a, that's another piece. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and also, I was struck by um, lithium, which once you said it didn't surprise me because it is obviously a medication used for some mm-hmm. mental health conditions. So um, I love that you kind of talked about different sources for that. Um, and we also had like a water show way back when where we talked about those mineral drops. And um, mm-hmm. so if you're Looking for more information for that, we'll put a link in the show notes on that as well. Um, I think, you know, some of the other things that we've talked about, mindfulness, you know, we've talked about um, endlessly on the show, just to make fun of Stacey's um, avoidance. Go ahead. Do you want to call it breathing techniques instead? Um, It it always makes me more comfortable. um, What's really important to know about mindfulness for mental health challenges is it's not just about uh, calming down in the moment or, um, you know, having a, a way to, to respond to stress when it occurs. It actually um, ch- it increases the connectivity between these different areas of the brain that are becoming more disconnected in anxiety, depression, PTSD, et cetera. So it actually helps to reintegrate the the cortex and the amygdala, for example. It helps to reduce amygdala overactivation when the amygdala is on this like high alert for for triggers. So um, it's been studied in in a lot of different sort of manifestations because mindfulness is sort of a big umbrella of different techniques. Um, But it's it's not just um, it's not just about learning how to breathe to calm down. It it really has because it has this like self awareness aspect to it. Um, it's actually helping to change how our the regions of our brain are communicating with each other towards a healthier brain. Agreed. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Um, and I think <laughs> you can also incorporate you know, some of, some of the other kind of stress management with that, that we talked about, like the fresh air, Mm -hmm. the sunlight, the nature, the walking, um, we haven't talked about, but is so critical, um, is getting enough sleep. And, you know, as, as one can imagine, once we say it, that is where the physical healing comes. And so when we talk about all of these changes being physical and emotional, and that's displayed in behavior, um, we cannot allow our body to heal 
in terms of cellular regeneration and all the different kinds of things that happen when we're sleeping if we're not doing so on a consistent schedule with enough hours. And um, Sarah's got great information on her website about different things that you can do to support sleep. Um, We've also done sleep shows, but if you are having your sleep impacted, which a lot of people are from these challenges, that would definitely be an area to prioritize because Mm -hmm. nothing else that you're doing is going to stick if we're not getting proper sleep. And I can tell you that both of, you know, I have two kids in the house who, you know, have things that we work really hard on and both of them were having sleep issues at different points over the last year. And it, it was like, we went from, you know, a 20% problem to like a 200% problem with just a few nights of bad sleep. And by focusing on the sleep and by focusing on the sleep, I mean, going to bed earlier, making sure all electronics Mm -hmm. were off well before and melatonin. It was as simple as like those kinds of things for them. Fortunately, we saw a dramatic improvement in their mental health just days later because we focused on sleep. So I cannot like emphasize enough how all of these things that we've talked about, like tweaking all of your nutrition and, you know, uh, doing all of these additional things really are you're not going to see a difference if you're not getting good sleep and I'm I'm going to make that statement and maybe Sarah you're like well I don't know but I'm like I'm feeling no, really confident like, about that statement I'm like jazz handsing over here I agree a hundred percent I really see sleep as as the linchpin the thing that holds everything else together like everything um ev- all of the, it's not just controlling uh our neurotransmitters and our hormones and our immune system. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, changing our eating habits, our appetite, um, and how effectively, um, we manage stress is in large part dependent on how well we prioritize sleep. So I pulled those numbers again. We talked about the sleep stress cycle in episode 397, and we talked about insomnia in episode 408. But Stacey, I want to really just emphasize one of the strategies that you mentioned, because it came up in a conversation in our household uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was going to bed earlier. I think there's this... um, this sort of natural instinct that if uh, I go to bed and I have a hard time falling asleep, that the way to fix that is to go to bed later, right? To wait until I'm absolutely exhausted before I go to bed. And actually what can be happening a lot of the time is we've actually basically like fought our melatonin spike, keeping ourselves stimulated with TV or social interaction or whatever it is in the evening so that by the time we're going to bed, we've actually turned on our stress hormones because we've been, we've basically missed our window. We've missed that natural window where sleep would have been really easy. Um, And so it can actually be a far more effective strategy to improve sleep quality and fall asleep more easily by, by going to bed you know, try 30 minutes earlier. If that's not enough, try, you know, try an hour earlier. Um, and this became a, a big conversation because we just shifted our entire family schedule towards getting up an hour earlier, but also going to bed an hour earlier. And all four of us have said, wow, I'm, I'm sleeping a lot better. Like 
most nights I'm, it just, I, you know, I feel, I feel more rested when I get up, even though I'm getting up an hour earlier. And it's, it's because of this really interesting physiology of like the, it really is true. Sort of like early to bed, early to rise is the, um, is the natural sleep pattern that is, uh, leads to the highest quality sleep. Could not agree more. So I think the, the last element, and we've touched on this before, but I just want to kind of emphasize is asking for help and creating mm-hmm. some of that um, social connection again um, in positive ways. So I think one of the things that we talk about with um, emotional healing a lot is how relationships affect us and how some relationships that you might think you need or are beneficial or in your life might actually be toxic and harmful and creating more stress for you. I'm not here to tell you how to manage your relationships, but I do think that it's important when working on all these other things to be mindful of the relationships that you have and how they make you feel. And we talked about it as related to self-care at how critical boundaries are. And so you can still have a relationship with someone. You can still have that um, social connection, but you can choose to steer it in a more positive direction by creating healthy boundaries. And that feels very difficult, especially if you're um, emotionally vulnerable or, you know, having challenges. But Asking others that are in your trust circle to help you or to be there to support you or to guide you in a way that you think, you know, I notice that when I interact with this person, I feel this after. Okay, how can we work Mm -hmm. on creating a healthier connection with that person and talking through whether that's with a friend or with, you know, a therapeutic uh, service or whatever the case may be. But I think, you know, pushing yourself back into social connections can be really great they can also be really negative. I've talked to a lot of people who have been, um, who feel better because of some of the interactions with people who they had difficulties with before reduced because of the last year. And so maybe you're having anxiety about re-entering because it means you'll be spending more time with someone whom you don't really want to spend more time with. And that's okay too, right? All of these things are about you deciding like what your needs are and then working to create that environment for your own optimization. Um, and that includes relationships with people. So um, I do think that it's really important for us to have connection though, especially if we've been feeling um, alone or limited in our interactions with people. I actually made a new friend over the past couple of weeks. It just worked out. I'm an introvert. I don't make friends easily. I'm like a super protective person. I don't let people into my bubble. And I made a new friend and I can't tell you how wonderful that felt. I don't, I feel like such a geek saying that. I'm like, I made a new friend. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) it's like really helpful to, um, I don't know, boost my confidence and also like have a clean start with someone and like all these kinds of things. So I will tell you from personal experience that that social connection is critical and, um, you know, depression will lead a lot of people to not want to interact with others and to feel very lonely. And even if you're surrounded by a ton of people, you could be in the most crowded room in the world. Um, But if you're depressed, you feel lonely. And so, you know, if you're feeling that way, 
finding a connection that works for you um, can be very helpful. Agreed. Um, and I think I think we just need one more reminder of don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to seek expert help, expert advice, um, needing therapy or medication is not failure. It is um, making a choice to use the best of all worlds to navigate this challenge and get through to the other side. And you're not alone. It's not just you. Every Everybody is coming out of this some kind of way. <laughs> so whether yeah, they admit it or not. I already talked about how I'm coming out of this. Yeah. It's not pretty. It's exactly. not pretty. Uh, but I'm, I'm navigating and we will all get through it together. Yes. And we will talk more about what we're really going through and what we really think over on the Patreon. We also are answering more of your vaccine questions. Um, that is an opportunity for those of you who have follow-up questions to submit them um, in that format. We did a couple last week. We got a couple more coming. So if that topic is... Um, top of mind for you or you have questions that you would like us to answer because we're not digging into that on the podcast right now taking a break after six shows um head on over to our patreon you can just google patreon the whole view and you will find us um and it's a way to support our show so we thank you for that and thank you for your patience and understanding of yourself and your loved ones as we all re-enter with collective trauma thanks for listening and we'll be back next week do you love the whole view podcast we'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family and did you know that you can now get exclusive behind the scenes content on patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month your patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode but not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. We are Allie and Erica, certified integrative nutrition health coaches in gut and hormone health and the hosts of the podcast Courageous Wellness. We are committed to destigmatizing conversations in the wellness space and celebrate the experiences and lessons of our guests in pursuit of physical, emotional, and spiritual wellness. Listen to Courageous Wellness wherever you get your podcasts with fresh episodes every Wednesday.